Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, August 25th, we are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. In today's text, Solomon draws his ultimate conclusion concerning wisdom for this life under the sun. Fear God and keep his commandments. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So we get started today, Pastor Squire. Talk to us about the book of Ecclesiastes. We're at the end of the book. What do we need to know about it as we prepare to look at the end of the book? Yeah, the book isn't that long. It's 12 chapters, but each chapter is fairly short. Um, And it's part of what we know as wisdom literature. So it's part of what in the Hebrew Bible they call the writings section. So, you know, you have the uh, the Torah, the first five books, you have the, the prophets, and then you have uh, the writing. So we think of Psalms, we think of Job, Proverbs, uh, Song of Songs, um, all those types of books. So there, there's generally a sense that you're deriving some sort of wisdom from these books. Um, there's not any narrative uh, history generally in, in most of, of the books. So you're looking at something that's more poetic, something that uh, is meant for, for gaining wisdom. And in Ecclesiastes in particular, you have uh, the wisdom of somebody who's lived a long life and has seen a lot of toil and uh, what he says is vanity or meaninglessness. Uh, so it's a rather negative book for the most part. Um, but as you already mentioned in your intro, um, when it all comes down to it, really life is about finding joy in fearing the Lord and keeping his commandments. Yeah, I mean, at the end of all things, it does boil down to something that is rather simple, that is behind everything that Solomon has said here, and really is is throughout the whole of, of Scripture. In terms of the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, where does it show up in the church year? I mean, any thoughts in terms of that kind of context? Yeah, so uh, it only shows up twice in the three-year lectionary. You have chapters one and two, where you have the famous vanity, vanity, everything is vanity or meaningless, you know, depending on which translation you're using. And then also chapter five, where the author is writing on what he says is the meaninglessness of riches and the evil that comes from having a lot of wealth and trying to sort of store up all of this and then it all goes away. Um, so yeah, we don't get it too often. You, you've probably heard chapter three read at funerals before. Um, there's a time for everything, a time to live and a time to die, etc., which uh, many of the listeners might recognize from that song by the birds, turn, 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 right? There is there is a season, turn, turn, turn. Uh, so generally, though, uh, in our culture, 
uh, Ecclesiastes does find a place with different phrases and ideas. You have sort of nothing new under the sun, the striving after the wind, these sorts of things. So, you know, Ecclesiastes is a book that, although we don't hear it a whole ton in the divine service, just as a, as a force of history and culture is something that's, that's embedded even, even in the, uh, the non-Christian parts of, of our culture. Yeah, it's it's striking how often the the book of Ecclesiastes does really show up in those cultural references. Though what's what's ironic, it maybe fits in perfectly <laughs> with the book of Ecclesiastes is that nobody knows where it comes from and and that nobody yeah. really gets the whole message of the book. They just know that brief little snippet. And since they don't know the whole message of the book, it almost turns out to be, well, meaningless. Yeah, there is you're right. I think there's a great irony here because as the author of this book, which is probably Solomon, is writing about riches and pleasure and, and all the things that, that turn into vanity and meaninglessness. You know, the world might pick apart phrases and, and ideas here and there, and yet the world continues to uh, strive after these things. And I think where we see that the Hebrew name for this book is called uh, Koheleth, which which means essentially the speaker of the assembly. And the, the Greek word uh, that's translated as where we get our English word Ecclesiastes. Uh, both of them, if, if you've had a, a year of Hebrew or Greek, you might notice the words kahal and ekklesia, which um, both mean essentially assembly or often translated as church. And so I, I think to dovetail off of what you were just saying, you have this wisdom that can really only come from being in the assembly of believers, uh, which is, I think, something we'll talk about here at the end of the book. Yeah, that's right. So how does we we are at the end of the book here. This is the the last section, maybe a an epilogue of sorts. How how would you how does this last part fit into the book? You know, various books of scripture, different types of literature, yeah. the end functions differently in different places. So how does the end of Ecclesiastes function in the whole of the book? Yeah, so I think epilogue would be a good word. And, you know, scholars debate, was this added on later? Is this just a way to sum it up? And regardless of how, how you approach this, I mean, this is the inspired word of God, which, you know, when you, when you read through Ecclesiastes, you have, like I said earlier, a very negative tone. And yet, whether it's the author himself, whether it's the Solomon or uh, somebody with him or after him summing this up, really what this does is again point us to that wisdom and knowledge if you're seeking that somehow in the world whether that's pleasure or advancement or whatever you're going to find evil you're going to find meaningless meaninglessness but if you're seeking that and fearing the lord and faith in him then you're going to find really the meaning of life and in, you know, as we looked at in the section before this, sort of your eternal home, you know, one way or the other. So like Jesus said, for those who seek after the things of this world, they'll find the reward already. But what the epilogue here is getting at is that already in this life, you better be fearing the Lord because that's really all there is that's going to last. All right, so with those introductory thoughts in mind, let's turn to the text. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 9 to 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, and love, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's our text for today. That's Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14. Pastor Squire, you mentioned the matter of authorship of this last section sometimes is is wondered. Is, is it Solomon still? Is it somebody later, another editor? I, I was thinking a little bit about that. I suppose the, the reason people might ask that is because of the way that the preacher is spoken about in the third person, although that's not unusual from other parts of the book. And, and just thinking through that question myself, you know, I, parts of the book of Proverbs, for example, are by Solomon, we know, but right. other parts are by someone else. Do you do you have any thoughts? I don't know if it, as you said, it's the inspired word of God either way. Do you have any thoughts yeah. as to who it might be? Yeah, I think, like you said, there are other instances of the author speaking in the third person. So if this is Solomon, it would really be no surprise it's not out of left field that all of a sudden we switch from first person to third person um in proverbs as well and so and we do this this is true in literature even today you have this moving back and forth uh between different voices and that's i mean that's fine people understand what's going on there's sort of a maybe um if you're thinking of it in visual terms almost like uh zooming back out and kind of seeing everything from the outside and so that might be part of it as well but you know whether this was solomon writing this at the time somebody adding it on you know we don't have any any sort of worry about this being you know uninspired or something like this this is this is seeking for the listener to come after the fear of the lord and to keep his commandments so yeah as far as the authorship question you know, even in the church fathers, they were wondering about this, debating this. So this is not a new question. This isn't some sort of, you know, liberal, higher critical question. And this has been talked about for 2000 years but and longer probably. But um, but yeah, I, I think this fits in well with the rest of the book and with Solomon's Proverbs and wisdom in general. Yeah. I, and I think, I mean, it reads, other than the, the part where he speaks about himself in the third person, I think it reads like what Solomon has written throughout the whole book, yeah. almost like it's it's almost as if it's a literary device, sort of at the beginning and the end, kind of like in in a movie where you have the narrator saying, "Here's the the main character," and then the movie itself is the words of the teacher, and then at the end, here comes the narrator again. Right. It's it's not hard for us to picture. So I'm, it sounds like Solomon to me, but I I could see where perhaps there's some debate. But as you said. None of it changes. This is the fact. Sure. This is the Word of God given to us through the, the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's let's look at what is written here. Uh, verse 9, being, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. What do we learn here? Yeah, so first I'd like to point out that um, Solomon—I'll just use Solomon here as— as the placeholder because it's simpler. But Solomon is saying, uh, again, uh, that he is the preacher. Which, this is the ESV translating, but the Hebrew word again is koheleth, which is the the title in Hebrew of the book, and it's that speaker of the assembly. So I think 
right away what this summary, this epilogue is doing is reminding us that actual wisdom and knowledge comes only through the word of God, which generally speaking, we hear proclaimed in you know, the church. So you have the gathering of God's people and the primary purpose of that gathering is to live in and to receive and to hear and to learn and to teach God's word. So I think it's, you pointed out there, you already have these bookends of third person. And I think too, just with the title of the author being the preacher, the, the teacher, the, the one who's speaking to the assembly, you have that idea that this wisdom that he's speaking about uh, is something, and as he's going to say, essentially, or at least imply that this is coming from God's word. Hmm. Right. So thinking through just Solomon's own life, the way that he became wise was through the gift of God, not by something that he did himself. Exactly. So, you know, if the readers want to look back at First Kings chapter, or hearers want to look back at First Kings chapter 3, this is the fairly well-known account of when after David has died, Solomon becomes king. Solomon goes to sacrifice, and the Lord appears to him in a dream and essentially just asks him very simply, what do you want me to give to you? Mm. And Solomon gives this long paragraph of, of humble, uh, just as stating who he is. You know, he's a youth. He doesn't know much, so he wants from God the ability to discern between what is good and what is bad. And the Lord is pleased by this request and says, not only will I give this to you, but you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for long life, you know, all these sorts of things, but I'm going to give these things to you as well. But the wisdom in particular is what Solomon becomes most known for, which we see play out through the rest of his reign in First Kings, but also in Proverbs and in, in all those other sorts of places where we see his wisdom written down. Uh, perhaps most famously in the account of uh, the two women who come before him and they're arguing about whose child this is because the one died and both of them are claiming that the living child is theirs. And um, so, yeah, this is a gift from God, which I think should direct us as well, that if we're striving after the wisdom of this world, we're going to be left essentially with nothing. Hmm. Now, the preacher here, is wise, this acknowledges, but he also then taught the people knowledge. What's the what's the distinction? What does it mean that he taught them knowledge in addition to being wise? Yeah, I think in our, our modern time and language, you know, we usually make a distinction between knowledge and wisdom in the sense that knowledge is something that is what we might call data or facts, you know, something that you can measure something that's observable, something that you can, you know, pinpoint. Uh, wisdom, on the other hand, would be something that has to do with, say, decision-making or how you live your life, right? So something that comes with experience, something that comes with age, something that comes with what's beyond just the intellect, right? But here, I think, and throughout Proverbs and the writings uh, and the wisdom literature, wisdom and knowledge are used maybe not interchangeably, but at least sort of as parallel. And there's, in, in Hebrew poetry, you have a lot of parallelism, of course. And uh, regardless of how you, you define knowledge here, even back in Proverbs chapter 1, you have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it seems like Solomon is using these really to encompass 
anything that has to do with knowing and understanding and following the Lord. So not just in, in the data points of knowing certain doctrines, but as we, when we look later to it, keeping his commandments, certainly how that then plays out in your life. So the the wisdom that Solomon had was a gift. He's also taught the people knowledge, and that's that's modified by saying that he he weighed, he studied, he arranged many proverbs with great care. What do all those modifiers indicate about Solomon's teaching of knowledge? Yeah, so those three verbs together do show a great and ongoing care, an intentional studying, teaching. This isn't you know, well, I went for a few weeks and I took a class and now I'm done type of thing. <laughs> or, you know, I I sat my kids down and I had a talk with them and now they know, right? This is something that, that happens over time. It's something that is continuous. It's something that takes action. It takes uh, effort and it takes an ongoing dedication to, to teaching and to learning. So, Oftentimes, we, we still do this today. If you're listening to you know a press release, a press secretary talk, if you want to emphasize something, you find three synonyms and you, you say it. So I'm going to do this, this, and this. And they all mean the same thing. But, but you see how well it's emphasized and, and sort of concrete in that. I, I didn't say it once. I didn't say it twice. I said it three times. Yeah. And this seems to be, I think, what he's getting at. But especially that last word, which, which is translated as arranging, uh, literally means to make straight, which is a word that's only used a couple times in Ecclesiastes. But the idea of it, you can see throughout the rest of the scripture. So you see it in Isaiah 40, for example, where the prophet is called to make straight in the wilderness a way for the Lord which then in the Gospels is applied to John the Baptizer. So he's the one who's coming to make straight what is crooked and to prepare the way. So there is this sense, I think, here, too, of, of preparing a way. And you know, even for us, recognizing that people can't just gain data points and facts and somehow become Christians, but that Faith comes from from hearing, and that way of coming to faith has to be prepared by study. It doesn't just happen sort of right away. Mm, yeah, the the lifelong pursuit of this knowledge, this wisdom, the use of it, is definitely in view here with these three verbs. Now he he weighed, he studied, he arranged. It says many proverbs with great care. That that sounds a little bit broader than just the book of Ecclesiastes to me. Right, right. Yeah, and I think this would be probably further evidence that this is Solomon who's talking. You know, we don't really know of anyone else who would be spoken of as, as giving many proverbs like this. But Solomon, like in First Kings 4, is said to have spoken 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. You know, so this is somebody who's been teaching basically for his whole reign and life. Uh, and not just writing down thousands of proverbs, but there's probably thousands more that were never written down um, that were that were taught. So you just have this this lifelong pursuit, this ongoing teaching, and this dedication to trying to s- what is wise, what is knowledgeable. You know, what does it mean to actually discern good from evil? Hmm. 
Right. So we, we've, we're learning here that this preacher, Solomon, that we've been listening to all along, he's one who he knows what he's talking about. He's not, he's not just writing this down at the end of the life kind of on a whim, but he's, he's gone about this very carefully. He continues to tell us more about himself there in verse 10. We learn that the preacher sought to find words of delight. What is Solomon telling us there? Yeah, I think first looking at the verb that he sought to seek, you go back to chapter one, and in verse 13, Solomon says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So you have somebody who has been seeking for a long time, and now a book for 12 chapters of what does that seeking look like over a lifetime? You know, what wisdom has he gained from, from this ongoing seeking? So in his heart, he's looking for this. And yet what he's found in the world, at least, is vanity, meaninglessness, a striving after the wind, something that looks like it's there, but like vapor is sort of just evaporating, right? So this, again, to go after the idea of this being a gift from the Lord, this idea of seeking after the Lord is a common one in the Old Testament. So like Isaiah 55, verse 6, you have seek the Lord while he may be found. And this same idea is used by James, for example, in Acts chapter 15, where he's actually quoting Amos 9 in reference to the Gentiles seeking the Lord. So this isn't just, you know, one race, one nation, but any man or woman under heaven who wants to seek after wisdom and knowledge ultimately should be seeking after the Lord. Hmm. Now he he said to that he, he says that he sought after the words of delight particularly. Yeah. What is the the significance of the words of delight? Right. So I think in my studying for this, I I, I thought a lot about Psalm one hundred and nineteen, which is yeah. Your your listeners may know this is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's what one hundred and seventy six verses, I think. Um, but it's all about the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, and what it means to live in that, to seek after it, and to find joy and happiness in that. So the, the, these words of delight, these delightful words, which we can also translate or understand as sort of words of treasure. What am I, what am I finding that is my, my treasure? Which, you know, at least uh, here, one of the, the readings recently in the Gospels was about, uh, you know, two parables that Jesus told about finding treasure. Yeah. And one way to understand this is that, you know, you find your treasure and you're going to give up everything for that. There is nothing in the world that is worth remotely close to what this treasure is worth. So when, when Solomon's talking about words of delight or words of treasure, Ultimately, this is going to be found uh, through the word of the Lord. And he, he speaks this way also in the Proverbs. So, for example, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There's this, this idea of, of seeking after the Lord only because you're, you're not going to find treasure. You're not going to find delight in words of philosophers, in words of uh, your parents, ultimately, you know, hopefully they're teaching you the words of the Lord, but if they're coming up with their own stuff, you know, you're going to be left 
left wanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Psalm not Psalm 119, I think, applies. Psalm 19, I think, also applies, because there the, sure. the word of the Lord is a delight. So you've got that, that similar idea. And this is, this is found throughout the Scriptures. So the preacher sought to find these words of delight, and then uprightly he wrote, now it's words of truth. Talk to us about that phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, words of truth. Uh, you find those echoes throughout the Old Testament and really throughout the Scripture. So Psalm 119, again, you have in verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. So what does it mean for something to be true? Well, essentially it means that God spoke it, right? Whether it's it's just a word in the sense that it's something spoken, or as we know, you know, God's word is performative. So it does what it says, which you look around you, all of creation is, you can say the sum of truth because God spoke this into existence. So anything that God says, whether it, it brings something into being or whether it, it does something or whether it's, it's just teaching, God's word alone is truth. And anything apart from that, you, know, you go back to Genesis 3, this was, this was the sin, right? They were trying to discern what is true, good and evil, apart from God's word. You know, God said, eat from any tree you want. Even eat from the tree of life, but don't eat from this one tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did because they wanted to seek after truth apart from God. So, which then carries into the New Testament. You have a place like John 17, where Jesus is praying and he, he asks his father to sanctify them in your truth for your word is truth. And so how is it that we are set apart? How is it that we are made holy only through God's word, which is, which is truth? Any, anything else, essentially, even if it sounds good, is is a lie. It's meaningless. Hmm. The words of delight, the words of truth. This is what Solomon has sought and written down for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to keep looking at this more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Mark Squire this morning about Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 25th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were looking there at verse 10. And before we leave it behind, I just I want your thoughts on the way that that verse is written. When it comes to, in the first part of the verse, he was seeking to find words of delight. And then in the second part, he's uprightly, uprightly he writes words of truth. I know it's not written in a poetic form, at least as it's written down in the English, but it sure seems that there's some parallelism going on that we would think about words of delight and words of truth as one in the same. Do you think mm-hmm. that's there? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, again, to go with the idea that you know, Hebrew thinking and, and poetry often use this parallelism, you have, you think about your own pursuit of what is joyous or, or full of delight. And there's so many different temptations in the world that are, are things of the flesh, these things that, again, might look good, might seem good at the time. And yet when they're taken away, when they go away, when they end, you're left worse than you were before. So there's this idea, I think that this is this parallelism re- reinforcing for us that whatever actually is true is what really brings joy. So in our lives, what we should be looking for is what is true, what is good, you know, the beautiful things of God, that those are the things that are going to bring us delight and joy, even if it's not sort of this, this fleshly feel-good stuff. Really, what we're, we're seeking is, is more deep down under the surface. Mm. And I, I think this is an important point for us. I mean, especially as Lutherans, we care very much about true, doc, true doctrine, and rightly so, we should, but not just for the sake of it being true, but there actually is there's joy, there's beauty in the truth. And I, maybe sometimes we, we forget that, that. And I think that's important for us. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it, it can become, you know, I, you know, convention was recently, and so you have, uh, we're voting on resolutions and, and this and that, and that's all well and good. But again, if, if we're missing the joy and the delight of the truth, just just being right to be right, uh, we're, we're missing out on, on a whole lot. Yeah, so words of truth, this this truth actually brings us joy. Now, as, as Solomon continues into verse 11, he talks about the words of the wise, and he uses a, a word picture. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and then they are like nails, firmly fixed, uh, uh, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Let's talk about the goads first. What's the picture here? Yeah, so a goad is a pointed stick, which uh, people can use to drive cattle to move. So another word might be a prod. And we, we have this word, you know, you prod somebody to do something. And most of us don't really think that that's actually a, a word picture, but it, but it is. Somebody's like taking a, a pointy stick and, and, and poking <laughs> you and it hurts, you know, so you, you move, right? And which is interesting to think about in terms of the words of the wise. So if we're going to really tie this all together as wise words being the words of the Lord. Well, how, how is this a pokey, you know, sometimes or a little bit, it hurts a little bit, right. To be, to be poked and prodded. Um, But I, what I thought of was Hebrews chapter four, where the author of Hebrews says that the word of God is a, a sharp two-edged sword, right? 
So his point there is that it's dividing, you know, there's, there's nothing that can sort of protect against its, its force. It's going to go right down to your heart and to your marrow and do what it's going to do. And so I think we, we miss sometimes too, that the word of God isn't always pleasant to hear for our flesh and that actually, and this is, this is the tradition throughout the history of the church that one of the things that we actually should be doing with the word of God is training our flesh. Mm -hmm. And Luther actually makes mention of this in the small catechism, uh, sort of, it seems almost like an offhanded comment in the section on the Lord's Supper. When he's talking about preparation, he says that fasting is fine outward training, you know, bodily training. Well, he sort of assumes that we're going to be fasting, right? That we're going to actually be doing something to train our bodies. Now, fasting for fasting's sake is good for our body, but apart from God's word, it's just sort of a physical exercise. And I think what we're talking about with God's word is that it should be driving us, especially still in our sinful flesh, towards what is true, towards what is good, towards what will bring us ultimate joy and not just joy sort of in the immediate time and place. Hmm. So the, the words of the wise are like goads, those pointy sticks that make you move. And then the next word picture is nails. So like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. What's the, I, there's maybe a clue in there as to how we should understand the nails functioning as the picture here. Yeah, so the nails being firmly fixed, I think that just reiterates, you know, if you put a nail in something, you want to bind it together. Now, we use nails for other things like hanging pictures, but generally speaking, if you're nailing together two boards, it's so that it won't move. And so when we think about nails that are firmly fixed, we're reminded of God's word again, which is, uh, as most of your listeners will recognize from uh, one of the services in the hymnal, Psalm 119, verse 89, that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, which is to say that when God speaks, you know, nothing on earth can move it. You know, God's word is going to do what it's set out to accomplish. So, and, and I love the image of that from Psalm 119 and, and certainly to connect it to here that when God speaks something into existence, it's doing what it should be doing. And as much as we might like to try, we can't really knock that off course. So when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to knowledge, it's really God's word, which, you know, to use the word here, nails it down as, as firm and true. So that, that firmly fixed, that, that same word that, you know, what does it mean to be true and sure? Uh, well, it's from God's word. So, and, and to put those two things together, then, if, if this wisdom from God is so firmly fixed, it would not be wise of us to resist the goading of that wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you said that, because it's not only true for us, but we see an example of that in the New Testament. This is what, when uh, Paul is recounting his Damascus Road experience, uh, he adds in, which he didn't add in earlier, that the Lord Jesus was actually saying to him, not only, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But he says to Saul that he was kicking against the goads. So almost as if Jesus had been prodding him already. <laughs> and not only was he saying, ah, no thanks, but he was actually resisting violently. You know, He was rounding up Christians to be arrested, putting them to death. So... Yeah, for us, of course, hopefully, 
you know, we're not doing anything like that. But I mean, there, there are plenty of ways where we are resisting the word of God when God is prodding our hearts and our minds to do what is good, to follow after what is true. And we might say, well, I, you know, I think I know better. Well, you know, good luck because God's word is immovable. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and just as to reiterate these points, then Solomon says where this wisdom comes from. He says these sayings, this wisdom comes from, it's given by one shepherd. Who's the who's the one shepherd? Yeah, well, I think he would probably realize by this point that he is not the shepherd, right? Even yeah. though this this image can be used of kings and prophets in the Old Testament. The one shepherd is the Lord. So you, this is very clear throughout the Old Testament, particularly and most familiar in the most familiar way in Psalm 23, that Yahweh is our shepherd. And but also in Ezekiel 34, where over and over the Lord reiterates, I I myself will come and I will be their shepherd and I will lead them. Right? So throughout the Old Testament, the Lord shows himself to be the shepherd of Israel, leads them out of Egypt into the promised land. And then when you think spiritually and in those sorts of ways that the Lord is leading them into truth and into salvation, which makes it all the more powerful than when in John chapter 10, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. Mm -hmm. You think, well, wait a second. I mean, (laughs) the Lord said, I am the shepherd, right? So what is Jesus really saying? Well, he's saying he's the Son of God, right? That he has come to to lead people to greener pastures, to bring them to salvation. And in fact, the, the way that he explains it in John 10 matches up so well with this because he talks about the shepherd's voice being the voice that the sheep know and listen to. So when you're thinking about words spoken and knowledge given and wisdom imparted, this this has to come from the voice of the shepherd uh, the sheep are not going to, they shouldn't listen to anyone else because whoever else is speaking is going to lead them ultimately into darkness. Hmm. Yeah, I think that the connection to, to John chapter 10 is great. And, and as you said, by this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, the shepherd really can't be anyone other than the true God, because the part of the whole point yeah. of Ecclesiastes is that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't have any control it's all in the Lord's hands. So the shepherd has to be God. And I, I think the connection to John 10 is absolutely great, as we see our Lord Jesus takes this and applies it to us as his as His holy flock still today. As, as Solomon continues then in verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. So I, I think the these is the, the words of the wise. So he's, he's saying, hey, make sure you pay attention to these, and especially these, and watch out for what comes outside of it. Right. Yeah. So whether whether Solomon is literally speaking to his son, you know, one way or the other. I mean, this is this is a device that seems to be used more broadly, even throughout Proverbs. I think really anybody who's sort of sitting at Solomon's feet here. And and like you said, what are these words? Well, it's not it's not as if Solomon has sort of encapsulated the whole of God's wisdom in Ecclesiastes. Um but what he's trying to do is, is point my son, point all the people who are listening away from the vain toiling after the wind uh, and to the words of God. So really, I think this has to mean, like you said, uh, Pastor Apple, that these, 
these are the words that tell us about God, and these are the words that come from God as true wisdom. I mean, so is this a, a warning similar to, say, like in the book of Deuteronomy, don't add to these words, don't subtract, or the way that comes up in Revelation also? I would think so, yeah. So Deuteronomy and Revelation would be the two places to go. Uh, I think you know, Jesus speaks this way as well, but, but certainly the warnings that come in Deuteronomy and in Revelation, especially in Revelation where... Yeah. You know, if anyone adds or subtracts from the words of these books, the plagues that are described in them uh, will be thrust upon that person. Well, okay, maybe I won't mess with this then, right? Um, so yeah, don't don't try to find knowledge beyond these words, which I think is to say, you, you know, as a Christian, you can't just sort of pick and choose what you want to believe, and you also can't can't say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe that the Bible's true, but I'm also going to add all this other stuff in. Well. Mm. You know, what, you're, you're just contradicting then what what the scripture says. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, uh, there's plenty of it out there, though, if you would like to try. So, of making many right. books, <laughs> there is no end. And I, I think that's another, that might be another phrase from Ecclesiastes that, that shows up occasionally in more secular culture. What does Solomon mean by it here? Yeah. Yeah, you know, today I think I read something like there are 50 or 60,000 books published every year in the United States. And many of them are religious books, uh, even up yeah. to like a third, I think I read. Uh, so there, there's no dearth of literature out there if you're looking to read. But this is, it's funny because you look at the history of Western culture in particular, and people have been complaining about this for 2000 years. You know, everybody's writing a book. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, if you're looking for wisdom, you can find just about anything you want to find anywhere you want. So there, there isn't a lack of books out there. But as he says here, that much study is a weariness of the flesh, I think, and, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I think this can be applied at least in some way, even to the pious opinions of men, which is to say, even if we're talking about something that is good, like for example, a commentary on a book of the Bible, you know, you can study a commentary all you want, and but if if your entire diet is commentaries and secondary literature, mm. you're actually missing out on the word of God. Ultimately, right? You're you're reading the opinions of men, even if they're the most wonderful church fathers. Uh, you should be primarily in the word. So I think to tie this back again to the beyond these, it's good to seek out. You know, these study notes and these commentaries and all these things, but ultimately you're going to find life and wisdom and truth in God's Word itself. Mm. Yeah, always always come back to the Word itself, right? You could also you know, right. look in podcasts on radio Bible studies, and there's a lot of those. <laughs> but always... That's right, yeah. <laughs> always come back to the Word of God. Always come back to the Word of God. Right lest we fall into this much much study that leads to the weariness of the flesh. And so Solomon then, you know, he really he gets now to the heart of the matter. Verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Here, here is the, the conclusion. Take us into what Solomon says. Yeah, so we have uh, fear God, first of all, and this is something he's talked about more than once throughout Ecclesiastes. He's talked about it in chapter 5 again with 
the relationship to riches and wealth. So you shouldn't be trusting in your wealth, for example. You should be trusting in the Lord. But also in chapter 8. So this is this is one of the, the central themes throughout the scriptures, that you should fear the Lord your God. Now we hear the word fear, for example, and... We think, well, how? What do you mean, fear God? But, but certainly, if you're reading the scriptures, and you know, even if you're studying the Catechism, the the fear here is a is a healthy awe, respect, uh, certainly in understanding that God can and does judge and condemn those who rebel against Him, right? So that that's part of the fear that God can destroy you if you're going to fight against Him. But but certainly, I think better for us to think in terms of what is you know what does a good father look like? What does a good leader look like that you respect, that you follow after, that you listen to? You know, to go back to Psalm one, for example, that the the fear of the Lord. You know, th- this is the delighting in God's word and meditating on it day and night. This is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's it's faith. And this is what Luther gets at in the first commandment. You know, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You know, if you really fear something else more than you fear the God of the universe, then you know you need to reassess what your faith is in. So this this is a faith word. Uh, and it and with the keep his commandments, this this really rules out this sort of and we I think we're tempted to this as Lutherans especially. And I could I could name some other denominations where this is true too, but uh, we we tend to think sometimes of faith as sort of I know the right things and I'm confessing the right things. And even with this word keep, you know, we, well we got to guard our right doctrine. Well, we do absolutely. You know, God's word is God's word, and it should be pure and unadulterated. Uh, but it but there's the implication here that when you're guarding, that you're also observing. And so Jesus, for example, in uh, Luke chapter 6 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? So fearing God, keeping his commandments, this is, this is essentially faith. You know, if I were to sum it up in one word, this means believe, believe in God. And that means both in your knowledge, but also this plays out in your life. Yeah, the the word you know when it comes to keeping the commandments, I think we do we often hear that as obeying them. That's part of it. We don't want to limit it to sure. obeying, but we also don't want to eliminate right. the obeying. And I think I think you're right. Sometimes we yeah. we as Lutherans are quick to say, "Hey, keeping means more than obeying," and that's very true. But it does include obeying those words of, right. of law that God right. has spoken. Right. Yeah. It's same with the word "listen" in the Old Testament. It really, it irks me when translations will translate, you know, shaman Hebrew, uh, here as obey. Well, I, I like the word listen because it, it, I think it encompasses both, right? When, it, when God says, listen to me, well, you know, hear what he says, but also do what he says, right? Okay. Faith comes by hearing, uh, but faith also, like James teaches us in his letter, also uh, plays itself out in works, right? So we, yeah. we should be distinguishing but also not separating these things yeah yeah that's right and then and then the fear of god as you said this is the the key term especially in the old testament really for faith and i think the way the book of ecclesiastes has has laid that term out in terms of fear god it it boils down to what other guests have said you know there's a god it's not you 
at, and keeping that reality <laughs> in mind, that's what it means to fear God, to live as if that's true, that he's God, you're not, and all that that reality entails, that's what it means to fear God. Uh, and so Solomon boils it down very clearly for us. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And then one last verse that he, he wraps up with, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. How does Solomon conclude there? So he's looking forward to the future. And I think this is probably a reflection that this was written near the end of his life. So this would be on his mind, what's going to happen to come. And I think all of us should not wait till the end of our lives to start thinking about this, in part because we don't know when the end of our lives are going to be. But particularly because, as um, some people like to say, you might not die. Jesus might come back before you die, right? So what what does this all have to do with this? Well, there's going to be a judgment. In other words, God is going to distinguish between the good and the evil. He, like Jesus says, separate the sheep and the goats. But actually, as we see, even in the New Testament, works are included in this, which is to say, again, to go back to James, a, a faith that is a true faith is actually going to do what God says, mm-hmm. right? So when when uh, Jesus or when Peter or Paul will say, you know, those who have done good to eternal life and those who have done evil, you know, this isn't some works righteousness. It's just a, a statement of reality, right? This is a separation of those who are righteous and doing what God says and, and those who are unrighteous and who refuse to uh, obey, keep, right? To actually listen to what God is saying. So, you know, looking forward to the end, really nothing is hidden from God. You know, you can pretend all you want right now to, that you can cover up your, your misdeeds and your unbelief, but everything will be revealed. And this is something, again, that uh, Jesus, no surprise, Uh, reflects on. So Matthew 10, verse 26, he's reassuring his disciples by saying, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Uh, Paul also reflects on this uh, in both of his letters to Corinth, uh, the same sort of idea. All will be, all will come to light. There will be no darkness anymore, which we actually see reflected in, in John's revelation that, you know, you won't need a, a lamp. You won't even need the sun because the Lord God will be their light, which means there's no corner of this new creation that will be uh, somehow dark or full of, of sin or doubt. You know, everything will be revealed, everything will be transparent and, and good. Uh, so Solomon's point here is that the time is coming. Hmm. So really, again, fear God, right? Get, get yourself on the right side of this, which is to say, have faith in the one who is the judge. Pastor Squire, we've got about three and a half minutes left on the morning. We've come now to the end of this text and the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, thinking again about this text, but also the, the book as a whole, because we've touched on the themes that Solomon brings up over and over again. How does this connect to us as Christians today? How does this point us to, to Jesus Christ? Help us to, to wrap things up this morning. Yeah, so I'll start with how does this connect with Jesus? Because ultimately, of course, like we've talked about, Jesus is our preacher, he's our teacher, he's our shepherd and our Lord. So it's only through him that we're going to gain knowledge and wisdom. He is, in fact, the word of God become flesh. So we should listen to him, as God the Father said, at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And and we should take 
the advice of God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, to listen to Jesus. Um, but we see here, too, I think, some reflections of this sort of toil and affliction and seeming meaninglessness in the life and death of Jesus. Because according to, to the world, Jesus' crucifixion is foolishness, right? It's a loss. And it's not until the third day where God redeems him, he vindicates him by raising him from the dead, that we see, I think, what we can say in a, not a cliche way, but in a really deep way, the, the meaning that comes even in suffering. So that all things, you know, Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for those whom God loves, who have been called according to his purpose. And we see this primarily, of course, in Jesus. God has worked the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus into the greatest good in the history of the world. So if we're going to find meaning in this, we have to find it in, in Jesus first. But certainly then, as an extension from that, we want to be connected with Christ. So if we're trying to find wisdom, if we're trying to find knowledge, if we're trying to find meaning in the world, so riches, possessions, pleasure, influence, whatever, it is going to be a striving after the wind. It is going to be a vanity. It is going to be meaningless because ultimately the, the only thing that's going to persist is God's word. And that word is going to be spoken into a new creation. So if you're apart from God's word, you essentially are going to find darkness and death. But what seems foolish to the world, the, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, you know, living as people of Christ is where we find true meaning. It's where we find true hope, and it's where we find salvation. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. He has been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Solomon has borne that out throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, and yet we know that in all things the duty of man remains. Fear God, and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter after all has been heard. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what gives life true meaning, that we would hold on to his word, that we would, we would keep his commandments, that we would believe his promises. This is true meaning for life under the sun. Hold on to this wisdom, dear Christians, now and on to the last day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Starting next week, we will be jumping to the book of Leviticus here on Sharper Iron, learning the truth of God given through Moses in that third book of the Scriptures. Please join us for that awesome study that we will engage in over the next several weeks. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.